you think of these houses that, you know, up in Fort McMurray, everything's really expensive. So these houses are brand new, cost half a million, three quarters of a million a pop. And, you know, they're running D10 bulldozers through them at three in the morning because the street one block over is totally in flames. The only way to stop this thing is to lower the fuel. And so instead of plowing the forest down, instead of putting the fire break through the woods, they're putting it right down Main Street. And that is not what people planned when they built those communities. And no one imagined that they would be using the same equipment that they used to put out petroleum fires to try to fight and fail to fight fires in their own neighborhood. And that's the world we live in now. That's 21st century fire. And that's where firefighting 1990 style will not help us. Hello and welcome to Life with Fire podcast, the podcast that explores our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Monti. I am super excited to introduce today's guest, John Valiant. John is a journalist and author who lives in Vancouver, British Columbia, and we spoke last summer right after his new book, Fireweather, published in June. And we spoke in the midst of the Canadian wildfires last summer, so that really characterized a lot of our conversation because it related really well to the topic of his book, which was the Fort McMurray fires of 2016 in Northern Alberta. And it was actually really interesting to talk to John while these wildfires were occurring in Canada because they were very much burning under the same conditions as the Fort McMurray fire in 2016. Boreal forests kind of burn on these seven to eight year cycles as we ended up talking about in the episode. So we talked a bit about that fire ecology, the boreal fire ecology. And just like in his book, we also dug a little bit into the connections between the oil and gas industry and shifting fire behavior, the increasingly catastrophic wildfire seasons that we're seeing. And this connection is especially present in Fort McMurray because it is a tar sands town. It's an oil and gas industry kind of mecca, if you will, in northern Alberta. And he pulls on that thread throughout the book, talking about the bitumen mines that are kind of the main economic driver in places like Fort McMurray. I think my favorite part of the conversation was when we started exploring some of the deeper themes in his book, one of which is the concept of shifting baselines, which we see pretty clearly if you've paid any attention to wildfires over the last 10 years. Um, I can say from personal experience that when I was first getting into fire, it was 2015. And at that time, we'd seen some pretty catastrophic wildfire, no doubt about it. But we had not yet seen the campfire or the Tubbs fire or the 2020 Labor Day fires, which were all completely unprecedented in terms of the impacts that they had on communities, the deaths that they caused, the homes that they burned down, the infrastructure that they impacted. These were unprecedented fires. Nothing like that had ever happened before. So now in the year of our Lord 2024, our baseline has effectively shifted with continuing fires like this. Our understanding of how to fight fire has not necessarily kept up with the fires that we are dealing with. And perhaps you've noticed this. This is why fires like Lahaina feel so deeply unsettling is because we haven't seen things like this before and we don't really have the tools in our toolbox to combat these things the way that they're burning right now. So John had some great perspectives on that and also on this discontinuity idea where you haven't seen something like this before. So when it happens to you, you are kind of erring on the side of what you know, which is that something like this never happens. So this happens in natural disasters all the time. Really, it's just this idea that 
you are faced with a scenario that you hadn't considered possible and therefore you don't necessarily have the tools needed to basically make good decisions in a certain scenario. I kind of like to think of it as like being on a sinking ship and being so focused on finding your luggage and getting your belongings together that you're not focused on the act of like getting into a position where you can save yourself. But really it's just that we haven't seen this before. It's unprecedented. We don't have the experience to make good decisions in this scenario. So we're just going to revert to what we know. We're going to revert to the actions that we know we can take. And so sometimes that means taking action that doesn't feel appropriate for the situation, especially if you're armchair quarterbacking or if you're looking at your past actions with new information that you've gathered since then. When you're reacting to something in real time, when you're reacting to something that has never happened to you in real time, some weird things can happen. And so I really enjoyed that part of our conversation, talking about these discontinuities in our understanding of what is possible and how that influences your response during a natural disaster like a wildfire. And the last thing I'm going to say about this book, which I really highly recommend that you read, is just how human it was. He really took a human-centered approach in the reporting of this book, and you can tell. He has all of these incredible details of what people were thinking while they were evacuating, how people felt when they came back to their homes that had been burned down, how people felt about losing family heirlooms, or you know, having their kids in the car while they were evacuating next to active wildfire. All of these really humanizing details that really make you feel as though this can happen to anybody and that these folks were just doing the best that they could with the information that they had. And in this case, everyone did pretty darn well because like I said, the evacuation was very successful and only two folks ended up dying in the process of evacuating, which I think is extraordinary given the circumstances. That's my little spiel. Uh, John was super fun to talk to. John's also the author of one of my favorite books, The Golden Spruce. If you guys haven't read that and if you're into like the forestry sector or the environmental sector, I really highly recommend that book as well. Huge thanks to John for coming on the show. And thanks to you all for listening and for being along for the ride. And I'm so excited for what we have in store for the next couple months of the podcast. So stay tuned. And I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hey there, Amanda. So glad to be with you. My name's John Valiant. I live in Vancouver, British Columbia. And I'm a journalist and author. And my latest book is called Fire Weather, a true story from a hotter world. and it, focuses on this massive conflagration in Fort McMurray, Alberta, which is really the petroleum hub of the country of Canada. And it's a city of 90,000 permanent and also temporary workers. And that whole city was evacuated in one afternoon on May 3rd, 2016. It's the biggest, fastest evacuation due to wildfire in the history of modern fire. And I went up there afterward and was wanting to kind of understand how the fire worked, but I realized that, you know, this was really something different, really something significant when I discovered that in early May in northern Alberta, where Fort McMurray is, there were still car-sized blocks of ice on the banks of the Athabasca River. There, Some of the lakes were still frozen over. There had still, there had been frost just a few days earlier, and yet it was over 90 degrees with a relative humidity of 11%. That's Death Valley. That's Death Valley dryness in northern Alberta in the heart of the boreal forest, which is, you know, historically the wettest biome on earth. And then I thought, okay, we're really into something new here. And I also thought if a fire can burn like this in early May with ice still on the riverbanks, imagine what 
these conditions could produce in a southern city, you know, say in Vancouver, say in Forever City, Michigan. And that really made me realize this was more than just kind of writing about a bad fire. This was really a warning. And, and as people, as I began interviewing firefighters and first responders and civilians, evacuees, I realized they were really messengers from the future, from the very near future, as more and more of us have discovered since 2016. A lot has happened since then. But in 2016, which really wasn't that long ago, this was still a really extreme anomalous fire. But, you know, the Tubbs fire hadn't happened yet in Santa Rosa. Australia hadn't caught fire the way it did in 2019. We hadn't had the terrible fires in Oregon and Washington. B.C. had its worst fire season ever in 2017. It's now, literally, as you and I are speaking, Amanda, the biggest fire in the entire history of British Columbia is burning out of control right now, the Donnie Creek fire. So a lot has happened since then. So I think my instincts were right that this was something to pay attention to. And what these folks went through, both the firefighters trying to fight it and the civilians just trying to deal with the psychological impact and the physical devastation of this kind of intensity is something that we really need to get a better grip on as a nation and as a society. Right. Now that I think about it, that summer really did set a precedent. We hadn't had the campfire yet. We hadn't had the tubs fire, as you mentioned. Right. And then now we're seeing something similar-ish play out this summer, impacting communities, but not impacting them, I think, to the extent that Fort McMurray was obviously impacted. But we're still seeing these intense smoke impacts. It's kind of front of mind for people. Alberta's kind of going through this burn cycle once again, that we know it kind of goes through every, whatever, five to six years. Yeah, what kind of similarities are you seeing now? What are your thoughts on this fire season, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Well, it's a continuation of a trend that was observed, commented on, predicted accurately in the late 90s. And it's this steady heating and drying. And those go together hand in hand. And, you know, just put your laundry out on a sunny, windy day. And it's going to dry fast, a lot quicker than it's going to dry on a damp, cloudy day. And the forest floor and grasslands are really no different. And they become much more susceptible to fire in hot, dry conditions. And climate change, you know, basically accelerated and intensified by the relentless burning of fossil fuels over the past 200 years, has generated so much CO2 and methane in our atmosphere that we have this now really tangible experience of a hotter, drier world. And obviously, you know, there are these massive rainstorms and blizzards, but when we get into the warmer months, the warmer months are warmer. And not just the days, but one thing that really struck me with the Fort McMurray fire, and we also saw this with the Calf Creek Hermit Peak fire in New Mexico, a real honking blaze, was the ferocity of the night burning. And historically, you know, before your time in firefighting, Amanda, nights, fires tended to settle down a bit and that slowed the spread, but it also gave firefighters a break. But if you talk to firefighters who were in Redding in 2018, Redding, California, in Fort McMurray in 2016, trying to evacuate people out of the suburbs of Halifax, Nova Scotia, of all places this summer, there's no sleep for them. Those guys are going 24 hours, then they're going 48 hours, and they're driving heavy machinery around. You know, they're doing things that nobody should be doing with 48 hours of no sleep, but they are first responders. They want to protect people. That's what they're hired to do. That's where their hearts and minds are. 
and the fire gives them no rest now. That's, to me, one of the signal and most dangerous differences about 21st century fire versus historic fire. Yeah, we were talking before we started recording about how Fort McMurray happened the very month that I was leaving Michigan to start working in fire. And then we talked a little bit about that shifting baseline where like, I got into fire coming from Michigan with no real understanding of what wildfire out West really even meant beyond kind of the suppression focus and really what it entailed. And then coming out West 2016 to 2020 were the years that I worked in fire and just the experiences that I had were probably very different from the experiences that somebody starting out in 1995 had or 1998 or 2000. Right. So I want to explore this idea of like the shifting baseline because I think it's happening in fire with the suppression focus as well, where we are being expected to do more with less resources often and in conditions that are very non-conducive to the systems that we have in place but also simply from sort of a societal standpoint, this shifting baseline and how we're kind of the frogs in the proverbial boiling pot right now. Can you talk about that at all and how that came up in your reporting? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, everything we know is from the past. You know, it's something we did or something somebody taught us, but it's all from the past. And what climate change is, is the future introducing itself to us with really no ceremony. It's suddenly, here I am, ready or not. And so Fort McMurray in 2016 was a really good example of that. You know, everybody up there was familiar with boreal fires. Everybody up there knew that May was a hot, dry, windy month in Alberta. Everybody knew that boreal fires are historically, typically huge. It's the biggest biome on earth. You know, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of miles of, of forest, a lot of it uninterrupted, unroaded, uninhabited, unlogged. So that was all par for the course. And yet, as people prepared to fight the fire that was on the outskirts of Fort McMurray, it was first identified on May 1st, along with four other wildfires burning around that city. Uh, and that city is 600 miles north of the U.S. border. There's only one road in and out. It's very isolated, despite the huge population that it has. And it's where all these bitumen mines are, which are feedstock for petroleum. And Canada is the largest source of foreign petroleum for the United States. And 90% of it comes out of Fort McMurray. So it's a big deal, big industry, big money, really high stakes. And so you had experts looking at these conditions. You had really good climate forecasters, you had really good meteorologists, all making accurate predictions. And yet, the way the fire was approached in terms of, oh, we'll, you know, dig some fire lines, you know, we'll get some cat guards going, uh, we'll get some sprinkler systems set up on that southwestern perimeter where the fire is, really was a kind of 1990s approach to boreal fire. And what it didn't take into account was 11% humidity, 90 degree temperatures, which is 30 degrees, Amanda, above the average for that time of year. So 65, 70 is normal Fahrenheit for that time of year. And it was above 90, coupled with 11% humidity, which is Death Valley in July. And then you suddenly have embers that can fly a lot further. And when they land, they ignite explosively. They don't just sit there and fizzle and smolder. They actually turn into active fire, multiply that times a fire front that's five miles wide, add 
25 not wins. And anybody who saw those stats and knew there was a city downwind would say, we got a firestorm impending right now. And yet that didn't register that way. And so they called the evacuation quite late. And even though they had all the best information, this is a really interesting phenomenon. And this, in a way, is a microcosm of how I think we're failing to register the hazards posed by climate change. We've had really good predictions. We've had really excellent climate scientists telling us for 50 years what's going to happen. And we have noted all that. We've written it down. We've reported it. We've even set it back. But we haven't acted on it in a meaningful way. And that's what you really got to see in Fort McMurray and microcosm, the way they had all this very good information. You had experienced firefighters. Everyone took it seriously. They did kind of all the right things, but it was sort of all the right things for 1995. And when we talk about shifting baselines, I think what we have to add into that is this notion of invisible thresholds. And fire behaves differently when it's 75 degrees out and 25% humidity than it does when it's 95 degrees out and 11% humidity. And it's able to do things that we're not used to it doing. In Southern California, we'd be used to that. In Australia, we'd be used to that. But we're not used to that in Northern Alberta or Michigan or Nova Scotia or upstate New York. But that's what's going to happen. Those are conditions that we're going to see there, certainly in our lifetimes, probably in this decade. And so this inability to be able to meaningfully transpose what we've seen in Southern California or Australia and say, okay, if it can happen there under those conditions, of course it can happen in the boreal, which can already produce colossal fires. And then imagine it being amped up with 20% lower humidity and 10 degree higher temperatures, you know, you're going to have a really different animal on your hands. And so you can't take a 1990s approach. You have to really think about it in a whole different way. And that's what they came to realize. But it really was, you could see that it was almost like that. There's a cartoon about people's registering climate change where they're not really paying attention. And then, oh, well, maybe we'll do something about it. And then at the very end of this sort of bar graph, there's this like, oh my gosh. And then you know, catastrophe. And if you did a 72-hour timeline from May 1st, when that fire first popped up, to when they called the evacuation, and frankly, people evacuated themselves. Like, they didn't even hear it from the city. Their neighbor said, dude, my hedge is on fire. You know, my garage is on fire, and I live three doors down from you. That's how people found out. And the fact that 90,000 people got out of there without a fatality is some kind of miracle. That's something we really need to study and pay attention to. How does a large community like that, with one road out, mind you, gather itself together and not leave anybody behind? And that is something extraordinary. And there's a lot of talk about unprecedented. And I would argue that because there have been a lot of precedents, you know, talk to people in Australia and, you know, Black Saturday 2009 or Reading 2018 or Tubbs or whatever, Campfire. But getting 90,000 people out in one piece in a matter of hours and another extraordinary thing, and this is another thing in terms of demographics and big city fires, which I don't think we've seen the last of, there are 80 
separate languages spoken in Fort McMurray. And so you have all these cultural differences, all these religious differences. And yet, even though there's sort of bigotry and racism and misunderstanding and all those things going on in that city, like any big city, the net of humanity tightened and gathered everybody up safely. And that's really interesting. You know, it was not a zombie apocalypse. It was the opposite of a zombie. People became more human, more humane, more disciplined, and they got everybody out. They lost a hell of a lot of houses. A lot of people were absolutely terrified. If you look at photographs in the book, I've got a, a photo section. There are evacuation scenes. You cannot believe those people actually made it out alive because the vehicles are totally surrounded by fire. You know, big fire dragons and fireballs rolling over the road. 150 degree temperatures on the dashboard thermometer inside these people's trucks. You know, unlivable. And yet they made it out. And so... Something really special happened there. Something really horrible, but also something really amazing. That is exceptional. I was amazed by that as I was reading, because for some reason I couldn't remember if there had been any deaths associated with the evac and with everything, but an exceptional stat. That is like an analog that we need to explore and we need to like research that into oblivion to figure out how they yeah. nailed that. Yeah. Um, yeah I really, they really yeah, nailed it. Yeah. No, it's really beautiful. You know, this horrible thing happened. And I think this is a crazy analog to draw. But, you know, if you think of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, all those protests, all those guns, and yet remarkably few fatalities. And so, you know, that was really high pressure, high emotion. That was a crisis. And yet people's humanity on both sides prevailed. And I think that's really interesting, you know, how much people's lives matter. Black lives, Fort McMurray lives, human lives. When the pressure is really on, I feel like there are many examples, at least in North America, of people really rallying and protecting life. And that's something that really moved me, talking to people in the middle of these evacuations and how, you know, they were absolutely terrified. Their kids are screaming. Their partner is losing it and they're having to keep it together. And they could have jumped the median and gone barreling down the middle or down the breakdown lane. But, you know, there are fire trucks coming. There's all these other things going on. And they kept it together. There were people certainly did that, but they were the extreme minority. And a lot of them didn't get very far. They just got stuck somewhere, you know, and they had to be bailed out by somebody else. But most people kept it together, even though the fire was burning right down on either side of the road and sparks and embers and, you know, huge firebrands landing on their windshields. You know, really things that none of us is prepared for were happening to these people. And maybe a bunch of listeners here may not have their own kids, but things get super primal when you're protecting your children. And you really get tunnel vision, like, I don't really care about anybody else right now. I'm saving my kids, you know, and that's how we got here. You know, we got here by saving our kids, but we also got here as a species by looking out for each other and tightening the communal net, because there's no way little tiny humans can make it in this world without that community. And you really saw that in Fort McMurray, you know, that fire, you know, they called it the beast. And that name was not idly chosen. I mean, that thing kept coming back. You know, that thing, fire, burnt in the city of Fort McMurray for well over a week. That is unprecedented. You know, that's never happened. There were still houses and whole work camps north of the city burning down two weeks after it came into the city. 
really mind-blowing. It is totally mind-blowing. And kind of going back to that evac thing, I did want to note that I thought you did an exceptional job of humanizing the evacuation process. I feel like I like read a lot of books about fire, but I haven't read any books about the campfire. Mm. I don't know. It's not that I've been avoiding them. It's just that this was the first book that I've read that really went into that process and what it Mm. feels like to come back Mm. to your home and really humanizes that in like a longer format than what you'd see in a normal sort of like, Mm. I've read various articles about this, but you know, you're talking about coming back and like seeing your family history gone and being the one that was charged with keeping care of that kind of thing. And just seeing that you failed in some way by not being able to keep those things safe. Like that's a hugely humanizing moment for me. That was like devastating. That was a devastating detail. Yeah, You put a lot of effort obviously into humanizing that process. I'm not even really getting to a point of a question question. I'm just like well, giving you well, a little appreciation. No, I really appreciate that, Amanda. And honestly, I went where they led me. I didn't know anybody when I got to Fort McMurray. And Fort McMurray, you know, Alberta's the Texas of Canada. Pretty conservative, pretty religious. Oil's a really big part of the economy and a part of the ethos. I'm from Vancouver, which is kind of the San Francisco of Canada. It's much more liberal, you know, much more laid back. And, you know, I said, I'm a journalist from Vancouver, and uh, I want to hear about the worst day of your life. You know, I didn't say it in so many words, but there was a two-word response to that question that I was asking that would have been totally appropriate, you know, and the horse you rode in on, you know, go back to where you can. And everybody, really nobody turned down an interview, and everybody I spoke to, you know, was really incredibly forthcoming. And there were a lot of tears male and female. And there was just a tremendous candor and openness about even the quote unquote mistakes they make. And, you know, what's a mistake when 300 foot flames are coming down the street? You can't be really responsible for how you respond. It's so animal, you know, and what's amazing is all these people ultimately did the right thing. But it wasn't always clear in the moment what the right thing was to do. And they shared that confusion with me that, again, really. I think allows the reader to kind of get into that space and like, yeah, what would I do? You know, and their responses, whether it's fighting off a policeman or, you know, screaming or swearing or, you know, all the different things that they did or going and locking the door of their house, even though it's absolutely certain that it's going to be burned down or feeling like a failure because they didn't save everything. When what could you save under circumstances like that? I didn't even know the right questions to ask, you know, and so these are things that they shared with me of their own volition, you know, that they were details that they felt were important. And I'm incredibly grateful to them for that because they were the people of Fort McMurray, whom I spoke to, are kind of stand-ins for all of us. You know, what would I do? You would probably do one of the things or five of the things that some of those people I interviewed in Fort McMurray did, including one guy stayed and fought. Everybody in his entire neighborhood fled very sensibly. And this guy decided to stay and fight. He had a garage full of snowmobiles and specialized machinery and a jet boat. He was a welder for a big oil company. So he was really comfortable around fire, a big, you know, strapping, not a back down kind of guy. And so he decided, I'm going to stay and fight the fire. It didn't go well for him, but he stayed and fought and he told an amazing story. And you got to admire him even though his mom and all his friends, you know, were saying, Wayne, you know, get out of there. Don't be crazy. But 
you can see why, you know, he was a real craftsman. You know, he built those machines. He'd modified them. You know, he was a real motorhead in the best sense, you know, and he wanted to take care of everything that he had built. He wanted to protect it. And you got to sympathize with that. And he's such a compelling person. And that's what really amazing. A lot of good storytellers up there and a lot of people with tremendous integrity. And the thing about, again, going back to climate change, we don't really know what we're getting into here. Yeah, and you don't know what kind of effects it's going to have on the people who are on the front lines of it. And so I really went in there. I realized, wow, you're a student and you're a chronicler. And, you know, I don't know if this is going to move the needle or change the culture or change anybody's opinion, but it still feels like such a significant thing. And it certainly was life-changing for them. None of these folks' lives is the same now. Everyone is in a different place because of this fire. It's really a before and after. And so this is a way to kind of chronicle that and honor that and just be a witness to the human experience and try to gather it together in a way that I really hope can be useful to other people who haven't been through it yet. But, you know, we're all going to go through some version of that, you know, whether it's, you know, a storm or a flood or sea level rise or a crop failure or something. We've got a lot coming down the pike in the next decade or two. Yeah, that's interesting. As you were talking, I was just thinking about like how you humanize these folks and you really got to like the root of all these stories. And you also covered a variety of other, I want to say tangents, even though that's not the right word, but like you got into the weeds in like the best possible (laughs) way in a lot of places. Yeah. This is not necessarily in the weeds, but the oil and gas industry, the connections that you made to the oil and gas industry, I thought was better than I'd seen anywhere else. Like the, the actual connection and like giving it the depth and like the space that it needs to really play out that connection between these increasingly destructive wildfires and the oil and gas industry. Can you talk about why you felt that was like an important bit of this? Obviously, there's the oil and gas industry in Fort McMurray, and it made it a very stark canvas for you to, you know, play that connection out on. But I'm curious, you know, what that process was like or what your thinking was like in that realm. It was a gradual process, Amanda. And, you know, on the surface of it, there's sort of the obvious science. You know, when you burn stuff, you know, whether it's a candle or tank full of gas or a whole civilization powered by petroleum, you're going to produce a lot of CO2. And we have known, science has known literally since before the American Civil War that CO2 has the power to impact the climate, that it retains heat really well. CO2 and water vapor both do that exceptionally well. And when you put a lot of it into a confined space, like our atmosphere, it's going to hold heat. So we've known that for 175 years. And so, you know, going into a place with a Petroleum industry is massive. When I say massive, I'm talking it's impacted the landscape up there to the tune of a thousand square miles. You know, you can see it not from space, like from a satellite. You can see it from outer space. And from 6,000 miles above the earth, you can spot the bitumen mines, also known as the tar sands or the oil sands. And there's nothing else you can see man-made from that distance above the earth. It's really colossal. And then The further in it I got, I realized that, you know, Canada is a huge energy producer and it's number four or five for natural gas in the world. In 2017, a third of the total output, natural gas output of Canada was used to melt bitumen 
out of the ground and process it into something that could eventually be turned into synthetic crude down in refineries on the U.S. border. So this stuff does not burn. This stuff is what you seal your driveway with. And yet they're burning billions, literally billions of cubic feet of natural gas daily to melt this stuff out of the ground and process it. And so that's a lot of fire. And so eventually it took me years. I mean, it's so simple on the one hand, but it took me years to get to it. You know, we talk about energy and energy is a virtuous thing. We love energy. You know, we like to be around energetic people. I want to do things that give me energy. I want to have energy and energy is a real positive. But then you look at our civilization globally, most of that energy is derived from fossil fuels. Okay, so let's think about what fossil fuels are, what oil is, what gas is. It's really fire. The only reason we're interested in coal, oil, natural gas, bitumen is because eventually it's going to burn. So it's really not an energy industry or an oil industry. It's a fire industry. And the energy that drives our civilization is fire. We really are a fire-powered civilization. We're a fire species. And we always have been. I mean, that has differentiated us from other beings since the very beginning. You know, once we made that first little hearth fire and could see in the dark, which was a kind of magic, and we knew that that would keep other animals away. And then we realized, oh, wow, this can actually cook food, making it easier to digest, easier for us to process. Many people believe, anthropologists and scientists believe that's one reason our brains were able to grow so big and our guts so small is because we were able to pre-digest food by cooking it. That is all debatable, but there's no question that fire has been our close companion. It's kind of like the chemical equivalent to a dog. You know, the dog's on one side of us, the fire's on the other side, and they both enhance our power in these really tremendous ways. And we both think about it right in my house right now. I'll go to sleep, sleep like a baby, and there's a fire burning in my basement. I got pilot lights in my stove. I got a pilot light in my water heater. It's turning on and off without me even knowing it. I'm totally cool with that. I live in an old wooden house. Who would have an unsupervised fire? burning in an old wooden house. And yet I am. I do. We all do. Most of us do. And it's like having a dog. Well, this dog was once a wolf. You would not trust it inside your house at night with you or your kids sleeping. And yet we do with our dogs. You know, we've tamed them, but they're not fully tame. So this idea of us being a fire-powered society and the oil industry really being a fire industry was revealed to me by just engaging and staying with the bitumen industry up in Fort McMurray, and then seeing all the fire that burned in the forest, but then all the incredible amounts of fire that are being exerted there 24-7, 365, in the effort to melt and process bitumen. And so it's all about fire there. And the flare stacks there, you know, we've all seen them in refineries. Well, the flare stacks up in Fort McMurray are 600 feet tall. And the jets of flame coming out of the top of them are another 100 feet or so. And so you can see them literally from Fort McMurray over the curvature of the earth. And the fire from these flare stacks sits on the horizon. It's like the sun. Literally, the first time I was up there, I was up there at dusk and I looked north and I didn't know which way I was looking. And I saw this glow on the horizon. And I thought, wow, look at that sunset. And it was the, the flare stack from Suncor burning on the horizon 
30 miles away. It's massive. It's like it's on this other scale. But I realized, wow, you have to be kind of dim to not finally get that, wow, it's really all about fire here. And in a way, looking at that society and the incredible wealth it's generated, a really interesting stat about Fort McMurray is, you know, this is a working class town. You know, these are folks who work in the bitumen industry, driving heavy machinery, you know, doing this and that. And the median household income in 2016, same year as the fire broke out, two years after a massive drop in global oil prices. So it was a depressed time. The median household income was $200,000 a year. Okay, this is in wow. 600, 600 miles north of the U.S. border in the middle of the boreal forest. People are living large, you know, and you look at their trucks, you look at their ATVs, you look at their mortgages, and these people are pulling down some heavy coin. So what you see, too, is how petroleum and the fire it generates enhances our wealth, too. That really helped me kind of understand, use Fort McMurray as kind of a microcosm for our larger society. All of us are enabled and empowered and in various ways enriched by fire. So we're at this really interesting moment now as we begin to move into an absolutely necessary and frankly overdue energy transition into non-carbon burning energy sources of reimagining what power is, what energy is, and even what wealth is. And that really cuts to the core of who we are and what motivates us. And so there's some really heavy questions about human nature and about culture and society and politics that this is all exposing. And I'm just sort of scratching away at the surface of it, but it's super interesting. These are questions we need to resolve in the next decade. Yeah, that actually brings me to my next question pretty well. I was curious if you were seeing or maybe sensing any gaps in the conversations that have been happening with the Alberta wildfires this summer and with the big impacts on the East Coast. I know almost everybody who knows anything about fire or studies it in any capacity probably has an answer to this question. I'm curious what yours is, though. Like, what was kind of missing from the conversation or what was kind of irking you about how these conversations were being had? You know, I think anybody who's paying attention to the climate file, anybody, frankly, who has a thermometer and is understanding why that thermometer is a lot higher than it was when they were kids at this time of year, is wondering why climate is not front and center in every conversation, especially around energy. And Alberta, again, Alberta is the Texas of Canada, even though there is tremendous uptake of green energy sources in terms of wind and solar in Texas and in British Columbia, there's a real reluctance to talk about it in terms of reducing carbon footprint, reducing CO2, and enhancing a transition to green energy. So in Alberta, the current premier and the party that put her in power is very conservative and discussions of climate are off the table. They literally will not talk about it. So they're in total denial, even as their province is burning to the point that petroleum projects are being forced to shut down because of fire danger and rolling smoke. So there's a tremendous disconnect that to kind of an objective, you know, say you're a Martian kind of looking at the facts it seems kind of crazy, you know, but we live in under very partisan circumstances right now. And when you get closer to it and really look at it, it's easier to understand. And again, I 
spent a lot of time with these folks who make their living and became relatively wealthy, certainly compared to their parents, working in the petroleum industry. And so you really have allegiance to it. It gave you everything you have. And so to turn on it, to criticize, it feels like biting the hand that feeds you. And I think there are partisan types who want to exploit that. And I think there's another way to talk about it, which is to be genuinely grateful for what petroleum has given us in terms of wealth and opportunity and mobility, both social and physical. You know, we can fly around in a jet and I can afford to send my kids to college, you know, because of this great job I have you know, working for an oil company. And those are real things that really matter. And we should be grateful for that. And at the same time, how can we also acknowledge that we have now an untenable amount of CO2 in our atmosphere that is forcing us into a crisis mode? And when you look at the heat extremes, literally from the Canadian Arctic, all the way down into Calcutta, India, you realize, you know, we can't live in these circumstances and natural systems can't function properly. So we have to rethink our relationship to fire and, you know, maybe even separating it from the oil industry or the energy industry. Like what's up with human beings and fire? And one of the things I did to try to encourage that is I counted the number of fires that humans make every day. And we make literally trillions of fires every day, especially when you count the combustions in every engine. And so we are incredibly effective fire makers. But if you took all those trillions of fires and all the cars and all the pilot lights and all the cook fires and all the bush fires and all the bitumen melting fires, put them all into one place, they would be equivalent to a super volcano. And supervolcanoes have a real impact on climate. And so that's something, you know, if we could look at it in, in a less partisan way, more objective way, I think we might be able to see our way toward a more productive conversation around what has to happen and what thankfully is happening. I mean, we're burning tremendous amounts of oil right now, but the amount, the speed with which wind and solar in particular are catching up and often overtaking local and regional energy sources that were traditionally coal or petroleum is staggering. I mean, it's literally happening by the month. And so we are in a colossal epochal shift right now around how we derive our energy. But we still are making too many fires for a tenable, viable future. Yes, absolutely. This is my last question to kind of bring it back. I'm curious how you think, how we can maybe take some lessons learned from the Alberta fire, from the Fort McMurray fire into this new future. Can you think of any good closing points, any good lessons learned that you'd like to add on here at the very end? I mean, one of them, you know, is the power of human beings and the real social safety net, which are our neighborhoods and our communities. Another thing that, you know, we're going to be forced to rethink is how we build, where we build, and what we build it out of. And I don't know if you heard, but just recently, State Farm and another big American insurance company have just declared they're not going to insure any new houses in California for fire. 40 million people live there. So that's another symptom or example of 21st century fire. And so if you can't build in the WUI, in the wildlife, wildland, urban interface, which we probably shouldn't be building in now, that place where the forest and the built environment are right up next to each other, 
we're going to really have to think about what our idea of community is and what our idea of good, healthy living is. Because living in a forest, you know, with a cul-de-sac out the front door and a running trail out the back may not be viable now in a lot of the country and in a lot of the world. And then the second thing or the third thing is what we build our houses out of, because the petroleum industry has become such an integral part of our lives inside and out that most of the modern house now is one way or another built from petroleum products. You know, once you get past the wood frame into the glues and laminates that hold the plywood and chipboard together, into the vinyl siding, into the tar shingles, into the vinyl windows, into the laminates that make the floors, into the urethanes and polyurethanes that stuff our mattresses and sofa cushions. All that stuff is derived from petroleum, which means it's fire. And if you get it hot enough, it burns like crazy. And, you know, this is a tough note to end on, but it's a real one. Those houses in Fort McMurray were burning down in five minutes. These were $500,000 houses, two stories tall, state-of-the-art, brand new, exploding into flame and burning into the basement in five minutes. And that's because the incredible heat coming out of this 21st century fire and the petroleum products that that heat encountered and combusted in the built environment. And so, again, it all comes back to petroleum, though. And petroleum has been, it's such a big part of our lives, but somehow we have to artfully, carefully disentangle ourselves from it. That doesn't mean remove it. There's so many wonderful things that come out of it that we need to preserve, but the explosiveness of it has to be dealt with and the gases that it generates have to be accounted for. And that is, you know, the task for the 21st century. One detail I remember from the book was them literally destroying houses that hadn't burned yet in order to make a fuel break. So that's something that I think we're starting to see more of that's starting to become the norm is that homes are fuel now and that creating fuel breaks literally means destroying homes. Through the neighborhood, yeah. And pushing them into the basements. And that was insane to me to think about it like that. I've known that homes can be fuel and that obviously our homes are made of this very flammable material in most cases, but that was a startling detail. I actually just read that chapter this morning. Oh, yeah. No, it it really shocked me too, Amanda. And again, you know, you you think of these houses that, you know, up in Fort McMurray, everything's really expensive. So these houses are brand new, cost half a million, three quarters of a million a pop. And, you know, they're running D10 bulldozers through them at three in the morning because the street one block over is totally in flames. The only way to stop this thing is to lower the fuel. And so instead of plowing the forest down, instead of putting the fire break the woods, they're putting it right down Main Street. And that is not what people planned when they built those communities. And no one imagined that they would be using the same equipment that they used to put out petroleum fires to try to fight and fail to fight fires in their own neighborhood. And that's the world we live in now. That's 21st century fire. And that's where firefighting 1990 style will not help us. And this is a concept that I think it might be worth us all becoming familiar with the notion of a discontinuity in the terms of the way futurists talk about discontinuities. It's events which past experience are no longer useful to predict or 
help you to deal with. And so the disconnect is almost like a break from the old reality into a, a regime so new that all the stuff you learned isn't relevant anymore. And I think that's what the Fort McMurray fire was, a kind of 24-7 week-long brutal crash course in discontinuities. Again, that's something I'm really hoping that Fireweather can convey to readers further south and readers in other parts of the world who haven't got there yet and can maybe help them prepare for some of these eventualities. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm just thinking about my own discontinuities that I've experienced. I remember very specifically flying home on the night of September 7th, 2020. I was flying mm-hmm. home from a fire assignment and I was flying Reno to Seattle. And so I saw all of the Labor Day fires as I flew oh, wow. home. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was just like one after another. Wow. And I was like, this is such like a I had no analog. I had no idea that it was possible. And it was like, I was seeing it and I wasn't believing it. And I don't remember another time that I felt that way. That's a really good example, Amanda. And that's what so many people in Fort McMurray like felt. They they saw the fire in front of them and they couldn't grasp what it meant. There's no place to put it because you've had no experience with it. What you experienced, what folks in Fort McMurray experienced, what people have been experiencing in New York City with the smoke, those are all discontinuities. I've never had anything like this happen to me before. And therefore, I have no psychic or physical equipment, really, to process it or manage it well. And so it creates a lot of confusion. And I think that cognitive and emotional dissonance is a really big issue that it's less obvious because it's happening inside us, but it affects all the choices we make. It affects how we interact with other people. And to me, it makes even more amazing the evacuation of Fort McMurray, that everybody was dealing with that dissonance. Everybody was dealing with that discontinuity. And even then they were able to gather up their kids, knock on their neighbor's door, make sure, you know, grandma in the basement got out and make sure everybody had a ride out of there. And we're an amazing species. That's what makes me so hopeful, really, is, you know, the lot of depressing news on the climate file and things are going to get worse in many ways. But we have our gifts for communication, social cohesion, grace under pressure and invention, you know, I think can be our salvation also. Fantastic. That was a very good note to end on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was amazing. Super fun. I feel like we don't dive into sort of the more general idea of fire on the podcast. I'm very, very focused on like fire ecology and prescribed fire and like using fire and managing fire. But talking about fire more broadly is something that I think my audience will enjoy because a lot of the folks that listen are just, you know, they're agency employees, they're firefighters, they're land managers. Yeah, that's a good conversation. And I think it's a good way to come into that oil and gas conversation with folks that are often a little hesitant to talk about that side of things, the climate change side of things really in general. And I find myself even questioning how much we should focus on climate change in some of these conversations. I feel like I often am like, oh no, we need to focus on adaptation. Like right now is the time, Mm. you know, with the smoke out East, I found myself 
returning to this talking point of like, no, we don't need to talk about climate change at this exact moment. I think we need to talk about adaptation. Mm-hmm. But then eventually I kind of came to the point where I was like, I don't think that's the right way to come about this either. I'm just completely ignoring the potential that we have to reduce emissions and what kind of technology we already have available to reduce emissions and things like that. But I just find myself getting a little bit trapped in like, I feel like in fire, especially a lot of folks are always more focused on the adaptation conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I really get that because you're really at the, you know, firefighters and incident commanders and scientists are really, you know, at the kind of sharp edge of the wedge. And they're really, you know, how do we have a better season next year and that kind of thing. And I really think, Amanda, it's a both and, you know, that's sort of one of the simple, but I think profound lessons that I came away with after working on this book basically for seven years is that it's not an either or. And I feel like the human mind coupled with, you know, certain aspects of society are trying to force us into it's this way or it's that way. You're with us or against us. And no, you know, coal is going to be with us forever. Oil and gas will be with us forever, but it's going to be different ratios. It's going to be a both and, you know, we're going to have a whole lot of solar and wind and we're going to have a lot of other stuff too. And likewise, to talk about mitigation is a really important thing to talk about. But again, we were talking about what a brilliant species we are. We're able to carry multiple ideas in our heads and we can work on multiple projects. And it's great to have people working on mitigation. It's a really important conversation to have. We also need to talk about climate change and energy transition and solastalgia, you know, the sorrow at losing the environments that we have grown to love. We're complex, you know, and so we deserve a nuanced conversation. And obviously, you know, the great thing about a show like yours is you can bring on experts from all these different parts of it and unpack it. And so through listening to a show like yours, we can get a kind of a holistic view of a really huge and complicated subject that has many aspects to it, all of which are really equally relevant and important and that can be addressed simultaneously. And so I I think that's a really important approach that I hope you can feel comfortable with and help to amplify because it is a both and world that we live in. And there's room. There's room for a lot of different points of views and approaches. All right. That is the end of today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I hope you learned something. A huge thanks to everybody for listening as always. As I usually do at the end of each episode, I would like to encourage you to share this with somebody who you think might like it. Maybe give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you feel so inclined. And if you are really feeling supportive, we do have a Patreon that you can support by going to the link in this episode's show notes. We have tiers ranging from $3 a month to $20 a month. And all of that funding goes towards supporting projects like our call for pitches to support grassroots storytelling from communities that have been impacted by wildfires, as well as the ongoing editing and production and et cetera costs of this podcast. So if you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you could support us in one of those ways, whether it's sharing or subscribing or reviewing or supporting us financially. So let's wrap things up here. Thanks as always for listening and we will catch you on the next episode.